Heavenly Father, thank you for another night of God on trial, where we explore the question of the scriptures and why we believe in them, what's significant about them, how do we even know they're true. God, I pray that with what we're sharing tonight, God, that you would speak to us and that, God, you would draw us closer to you by what we uh, discover tonight. So we love you. In your name we pray. Amen. So let me start off this way. Tonight's message... Tonight's message, like some of the messages in this whole series, is going to be a lot of information, okay? And I gave you specifically, I gave you the outlines on your seats because I want you to be able to follow along with me. And here's why this is really important. I think there's this myth that maybe a lot of us have bought into, that the scriptures are kind of nice stories, but as far as being able to trust the validity of them, or maybe this word, the ability to trust the authority of them, there doesn't bear a lot of weight. And so we may look at the verses in Scripture and we may say, oh, that's really cute and that's nice. But as far as would you bank your whole life on them? Would you, would you listen to them as you're reading them? Like to actually take these words and, 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 and put them so close to your heart and, and to literally wrap your life around these words. Maybe some of us would go, I just don't know if it's worth it. I don't know if I can actually trust what it's saying. And so what we're going to talk about tonight is just that. And so um, I want to start out with, uh, I I may have told you guys this story before, but I want to tell you about my first almost kiss, okay? So there was this girl named Brittany, okay? Now, Brittany was the cutest girl I had ever seen up to the fourth grade, okay? So I'm in the fourth grade, right? And this girl, Brittany, I'm telling you. Like, she was awesome, right? She was the coolest girl. She was super cute. Um, she was funny, I guess. I don't know. But as a fourth grade, I was like, this is great. Now, our teacher in fourth grade made us rotate seats all the time, okay? So, like, every few weeks, she would change our seating chart. Now, Brittany, I wonder if Brittany would ever see this. This would be so weird. But anyway, uh, Brittany, who I don't know where she is right now, but Brittany would sit across the table from a young gentleman, a competitor of mine by the name of David Pike, okay? So, so... David Pike is right here. Brittany is right there. And I'm like way off in no man's land. I don't know if any of you remember this from elementary school. Like if you had a crush or something and you didn't get to sit next to him. And that basically means there's no hope of a relationship. Do you know what I mean? You're like, like the whole, the whole, all, all the potential of your relationship depends on where you sit, right? So, so I'm sitting there. I'm sitting in no man's land. And I'm watching Brittany and David Pike playing footsies under the table. And it's just like enraging me. You know what I mean? I'm like. My girlfriend, you know, like I'm like, this is wrong. I'm freaking out. And so they're playing, they're playing footsies, and I'm over here. A few weeks later, a few weeks later, Miss, whatever her name is, switches the seats around, and all of a sudden, I'm right here, and Brittany's right here. Okay? We began playing some footsies under the table. You know what I mean? So we're playing some footsies, and I'm like, we're gonna get married. This is great. This is happening just like I had planned. Brittany, later that week, says, Hey, Eric. On Saturday, do you want to come over to my house? What? You guys, this is Brittany we're talking about, right? Now, if I had known Sarah, Brittany would be like nothing. But I didn't know. I didn't have the picture of Sarah. So I said, oh my gosh, Brittany invited me over to her house. So I go over to Brittany's house. My mom drives me there, right? I'm a fourth grader. We're driving in this ugly green minivan that my family had, okay? And, and we drive up and we park and I'm so excited. I book it. In, I book it. I knock on the door a hundred times. She answers the door. I'm like, I'm here. And we start hanging out. We're having a lot of fun. And then she says, let's go jump on my trampoline. So we go to her backyard. Yeah, you know. So we're in the backyard. 
we're jumping on the trampoline, things are going really well, right? Our moms are inside talking and, and having fun, right? They're like chatting, having coffee or whatever. Brittany says, do you want to go rollerblading, okay? You never say no when a girl says, do you want to go rollerblading? So I'm like, yes, I want to go rollerblading. I brought my blades. So I strap on my blades. She gets her blades on, right? She gets her blades on, and we begin, like, blading out in her front yard. Now, there's no parents around. There's no parents around. So, fourth grade me, which is, like, a weird thing to picture. I had, like, bleach-tipped hair. I looked awful. Um, I was in fourth grade. And Brittany and I are skating out front, and all of a sudden, she says, Eric, close your eyes. Come on! This is happening just as I planned. So I'm like, yes, Brittany, you got it. So I'm sitting there. I'm sitting there. I'm on my skates, like kind of wobbling a little bit, right? Like all of a sudden getting really nervous. Okay. I close my eyes. Okay, I close my eyes, and I go... Now you get to see what Sarah sees all the time. Okay, so I'm closing my eyes. I'm like, I'm like thinking I'm going to get a kiss, right? Okay, so I'm, I'm kind of like leaning in on the blades, about to kiss her. And all of a sudden, all of a sudden, in like a split second, she grabs my hands and I'm like, oh, this is great. Okay, I don't know what she's going to do, but she grabs my hand and she had, in the, in the, in the moments that I had closed my eyes, she had grabbed all this like dirt and like uh, mud and stuff and flowers from the ground. She had grabbed it all. She smushes it in my hands, rubs it all around. She's like, ha, 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 and then boom, skates off. And I'm like, where's my kiss? What happened, right? And I'm sitting there like, this is not how I expected this to go. And then a few weeks go by and what happens? Seating chart changes, right? All of a sudden, Eric is out in the boonies. And David and Brittany are back together. It's like my teacher was scheming. And they begin playing footsies again. And it dawns on me. What I thought was going to be this incredible relationship. This thing that I had planned in my mind. I said, okay, we're playing footsies. She's inviting me over. We're going to kiss. All of a sudden, in a matter of moments, I was completely let down. My thinking about what was going to happen was completely crushed. All the faith and hope that I had put into this moment and this experience, I was completely let down. And you guys, my question for you is this. Is scripture like that? Is scripture something that maybe right now we would say, oh yeah, we totally believe in it. But at the end of the day, when push comes to shove, when things get really tough, when all of a sudden life is at its worst, will it let us down? Could, could this, these words that we think are from God, could they let us down? Because here's what I think. I think many of us spend our lives thinking that the scriptures, thinking and, 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 and maybe hoping that the scriptures are going to hold true. But we have this curiosity like, are they really, are they really going to provide the hope? Are they really going to speak to us? Is, is God really in them? And my fear is this. My fear, if I'm honest, is what if these scriptures, what if they let us down? What, what, what if this really isn't the word of God? And so what I want to share with you tonight is just some stuff that God has been teaching me through some stuff that I've been reading, which makes me believe 
that we can bank on the scriptures, that we can put our hope in these words that God wrote us, that it's not like these moments where we go, I think this is going to work, and then all of a sudden mud is in our hands, and we go, well, there were some nice thoughts in there. No, the scriptures are God's word to us, and what we're going to talk about is we're going to talk about these three things. We're going to talk about what is the Bible. So what is the actual Bible? Second thing we're going to talk about is how do we know it's actually true? Like, why do Christians believe that the Bible is true? And then thirdly, why should we even read it? And so we're going to breeze through these things as fast as we can, but my hope and my desire is this, that after tonight's message, you would look at the scriptures in a more intentional, serious way. That when you're reading the scriptures, you wouldn't just say, man, I hope this is true. But you would say, no, I can bank my life on this. So first thing we're going to talk about is what is the Bible? So first thing is this, what is the Bible? The Bible is a love letter from God to us. So we fundamentally have to think about the Bible in this way. It's not just an historical account. It's not just a bunch of interesting events. It's not just about things that happened or that will happen. No, no, no. The scriptures from Genesis to Revelation are a love letter from God to us. Which this is a really important moment to pause on. Sometimes in Christianity and following Jesus, we can begin to become so obsessed with the Bible where we say, this Bible is, is God. That we begin to find ourselves like worshiping the scriptures. But the point of the scriptures, just like a good love letter, right? The point of the scriptures is that they point us towards God. That they're an accurate, trustworthy, reliable account of God. So you see, the scriptures are supposed to point us, just like a love letter. You would never look at a love letter and you would never be like, oh, this college-ruled paper, oh, I love it, right? Or you'd never be like, oh, the blue ink is so awesome. Like, you would never trip out about those things. What you would become focused on is the person who wrote the love letter. And so that's the point of the scriptures. The point of scriptures is that we would understand that it is God's love letter. It is God's message to us. It is God's hope for us. And he means for us to encounter him in the scriptures. He means for us to grow in our relationship with him through the scriptures. Um, Can somebody go and control that real quick, Rob? Can you just push the next one? Um, Let me see. Sorry, guys. Thank you. Perfect. Okay, so here's what the Bible is. And we're just going to quickly go through this because I think all of us need to get on the same page about what is the Bible. So the first thing the Bible is, is it is a library. It's not a book, okay? So the Bible is not one book in that it had one author and they were writing from one time and place, um, but it is a library. So it is a collection of different writers, reflections on God and, and the ways God spoke to them through different time periods, which is really cool. Because it's like God has spoken through all these people in such a powerful way through all the time in history. So some of the genres are history, poetry, there's story, there's biography, there's songs in it, there's letters. That, that it, is this, it is this library that is divided up into 66 books. And each book is written in a little bit of a different way from a different perspective. It's written from possibly different people. It's written at a different time and place from a different time and place. There's actually 40 different authors. Isn't that crazy? 
That you find, you find a consistent message about a God who loves his people so much that he wants to create a covenant relationship with them, that he would give up his life for them. You find that stretched out throughout 40 different authors. And here's what's insane. We, we have recent manuscripts, right? So we have, we have these age-old manuscripts that the scriptures were written on. We have these recent ones, and then we have these ancient ones that are like thousands and thousands of years old. And you know what's crazy? Is there is a match up to 99% when you compare these ancient manuscripts and you compare the current ones that we have and then you compare the scriptures that are in our Bibles that when you open it up and you're looking, what you're reading is 99% accurate to what was originally written. And you're asking the question, what's that 1%? That 1% is punctuation. That 1% is a slight misspelling. It's, it, it's something so insignificant. And it's actually amazing because there's more, the evidence is more accurate and concise that Jesus Christ lived than that Abraham Lincoln ever lived. That there's more evidence that Jesus was who he said he was, that he lived in the time he did than there is for most people that we would automatically assume, oh, that historical figure existed. So there's tons of evidence in that realm. Last thing I want to say is there's 140 eyewitness details. So in, as, as you're looking through the scriptures, there's details that only people who were there would have known. The second thing is there are over 30 references to historical people. We're going to talk about why that's important in a little bit, but here, here's what's interesting. If this book was just made up, right? If the Bible was just made up, and it mentioned 30 different historical people and lied about facts or manipulated things, somebody would have said something. Somebody said, no, this isn't true, but we don't have that in history. So check out this next one. We're going to breeze through. Um, What is the Old Testament? So the Old Testament was written, so that Old Testament is that first 33 books where it's, uh, it was written between 1400 and 400 B.C., and it's written on papyrus and on leather in the languages of Hebrew and Aramaic. And by the year 95 CE is actually when that whole Old Testament was collected. So before then, like the Jews and, 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 and the ancient Israelites, what they would have had is they would have had different books. They would have had like the first five books of Moses or um, Psalms or, or, or some of the prophets. But they didn't have a whole unified collection until the year 95. Check out some facts about the New Testament. The New Testament was written in the first and early second century. That's hugely important because that is a really close time period to when the actual events took place. But if you're going to tell a story and you're going to make up some lies, you want to write it years and years and years after. But that's not the case with some of these letters and these gospels that we have. It was written in Koine Greek, um, which is a very vulgar common language, right? So it's like, what did we just say? Hana, 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 whatever. It's, it's, <laughs> it's just like that. It's written in language that people could understand. Which is really cool that when God decided to use these people to write his story, he made it available to everyone. He made his words available to everyone. It was in 397 at the Council of Carthage where the Bible was finally canonized. Where this group of people said, okay, we're going to take these gospels and these letters and we're going to put it all into this one unified book. Now early in the church, the letters, the gospels, they were all being circulated and people were reading them and they were worshiping with them and, and they were informing their lives. But it wasn't until 397 when it kind of became solidified. So let's go to the next one. Check this out, you guys. This is huge. This is profound. Of the hundreds of thousands of artifacts 
found by other archaeologists, not one has ever been discovered that contradicts or denies one word, phrase, clause, or sentence of the Bible, but always confirms and verifies the facts of the biblical record. And so as archaeologists and researchers and people who aren't even necessarily Christians, as they're finding out more about what the Bible writes and what the Bible tells us, it's proving it over and over and over again that the places were real, that the people were real, and that the events were real, which is just pretty amazing. Let's go to the next one, Rob. Thanks. So how do we know it's true? And this is a really important question, and it's an okay question to ask as a Christian. Like, how do we know the Bible's true? Why do we, why do we believe that it's true? I want to show you five reasons. I want to show you five reasons, real quick, why we think the Bible is real, why we believe that the Bible is accurate in what it says. So the first one is this. The New Testament writers included embarrassing details about themselves. So here's what I want you to picture. If you're wanting to make up a story about God, right? If you're wanting to make up a story about how God is in the world or who God is, what kind of things would you include? And what kind of things would you not include? If you have total control over the story... And if there really is no God, but you're just making things up, what would you include and what wouldn't you include? I think this point is huge because this is evidence. This is evidence that the scriptures are real because the people writing them, they devalue themselves. Which is to say that what they were writing was true. Because what they encountered was so powerful and so amazing that even their faults, even their insecurities, even their weaknesses would not get in the way of the story of what God was doing in the world. So look look at a few of these. The disciples fall asleep when Jesus needs them most, right? So if you're the disciples and there's no Jesus and you just want to make up this story about this awesome Jesus, wouldn't you make yourself awesome too? You would make yourself sound like this amazing hero that was in partnership with Jesus. But what we find in the Gospels is they tell it like it is. They say, hey, we dropped the ball. We weren't always there for him. Peter is called Satan in the Bible, Can you imagine that? Like, that's going to stick with you as these gospels are being spread out throughout the world. Everyone reading them is going to get to that part where they go, um, Jesus says, uh, get behind me, Satan? They call Peter? Can you imagine the rumors that would have spread about Peter? Can you imagine how people would have felt about him? Why would you include that detail if it wasn't true? If the scriptures weren't true? And lastly, Some are confused and doubt before and after the resurrection. If you were making up this story, you would have it say, you know, some were doubting before and then after the resurrection, everyone believed and the whole world was changed. But that's not what happens. It says that there are honestly some who still struggled. After seeing Jesus, they went, I don't know what to make of this. Which just shows the realness. Check out point two, reason two. The New Testament writers included events related to the resurrection that they would not have invented. For example, Joseph, who was part of the Sanhedrin, he was viewed favorably in the Gospels. He's viewed favorably for burying Jesus. But the Sanhedrin were the same group of people who crucified him. So if you're writing the story and you're going, here's this group of Sanhedrins who crucified, who killed our best friend, That would be a great moment for you to bash them, for you to tear them apart. But in the Gospels, this guy's viewed favorably. Because in the events of Jesus' life, this guy was helpful. 
And so the story is raw and it's real like that. The next point is this. Mary Magdalene, who is female and formally possessed, she's the first to see Jesus. If you're making up a story that somebody rose from the dead in the first century, here are two character traits you do not want to have in that person. You do not want them to be formally demon-possessed, and you do not want them to be a female. And here's why. Back in that day, they would look at somebody that was formerly possessed, and they would say, you are unreliable, your witness, your record is completely invalidated. Secondly, they viewed women, they viewed women as having no voice on any political issues, um, on any eyewitness accounts. Women had no standing in that day. And so why would the Gospels say that it was a woman who was formerly possessed, she was the first to see Jesus if it wasn't true. That would not help their case at all. Next point is this, number three. The New Testament writers include more than 30 historically confirmed people in their writings. We talked about that a second ago, but, but why would you mention these 30 people if they weren't true? There's some other religions who have stories about people And as we've researched and found, those people are not real. We can't find records of them anywhere. But in the Bible, you read about real historical people. And if those people really existed and then got a hold of these letters and these gospels and and these passages and said, this is a lie, this is a bold-faced lie, then Christianity and the message of Christianity would have been squashed long ago. But the accounts are authentic. Number four is this. The New Testament writers challenge their readers to check out verifiable facts. Pastor Glenn shared this with you last week, but it is so huge. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul says this. He talks about Jesus resurrecting from the dead, rising from the dead, and he says this. He says, many saw him, more than 500, and many of them are still living today. You know what Paul's saying there? He's saying to his first century writers, go ask them. Right? He's not saying, hey, Jesus rose from the dead way off in no man's land, and you know, it was only me who saw him. It was only me who happened to see him. Take my word for it. He doesn't say that. He says there were hundreds and hundreds, and in fact, many of them are still alive and living among us. Why would Paul say that if that wasn't true? How could Paul claim that? Wouldn't somebody instantly say, no, you're lying, dude? But instead, they believe. Instead, they recognize, yeah, there are people who say they saw Jesus. Last point is this. The New Testament writers abandoned their long-held sacred beliefs, adopted new ones, and did not deny their testimony under persecution or threat. These people begin worshiping Jesus as God. They were monotheist, good-practicing Jews who only worshiped Yahweh, and then they begin worshiping someone else. That's a radical change in their life. The second thing is Peter is crucified. History says he was crucified upside down. Peter is actually crucified upside down for believing that Christ was risen from the dead. And all he had to say to avoid all that punishment would be say, Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. It was, we were making it up. Um, we thought it'd be a cool story, but it's, it's not true. But he doesn't. James, okay? James is the brother of Jesus. He's the brother of Jesus. And he is preaching. He's telling people that Jesus rose from the dead. And then he is actually stoned to death. So a group of people grab these rocks and they literally hurl them at him until he dies. And he is the brother of Jesus. Why would you endure that? Why would you endure that? Claiming your brother 
is the son of God and endure that kind of punishment if it wasn't true? Because these were eyewitnesses, right? And lastly, this. 11 of the disciples were martyred. So these are the 11 guys who saw Jesus before, who saw him die, who went to the tomb expecting him to still be dead, and then saw him rise from the dead. These 11 were all martyred, and one of them, John, was exiled to an island. And each of them could have lived a wonderful life if they had just said, it was a story. We made it up. He's not risen from the dead. We're sorry about this. They could have avoided all of that pain, but they didn't. Check out this quote. Misguided people may die for a lie they think is true. So people who believe in a certain religion right now that tells them to go do this act, to go kill people, to go do this crazy thing, they may believe, right? They may believe that 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 lie is actually a truth and, and so they go about killing themselves or they go about doing awful things. But they will not die for a lie they know is a lie. So these first century disciples, these people who knew Jesus, who were best friends with Jesus, who either did see him rise from the dead or did not, if you know something's a lie, you don't die for it. And yet these guys, they died for it. So that gives us some evidence. Last thing we're going to talk about is why do I think we should read the Bible? Why do I think we should read the Bible? First thing I want to share with you, um, let's just go to the next one real quick, um, is, is this verse. This is one of my favorite verses in all scripture. All scripture is god breathed. It's a beautiful way of putting it. All scripture, Genesis to Revelation, every book in between, Old Testament, New Testament, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that all God's people may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Here's what it's saying, you guys. We can encounter the life of God. We can encounter the living Christ through these scriptures because what God did is he used these humans to write in their cultural situations, but he breathed through them in such a way that when we read these scriptures, it's like we're breathing in God's word to us, God's message to us. And the point of it It's not just to inflate our heads, right? It's not just so that we'd memorize verses that we'd be smarter. That's not the point. The point is that these scriptures would so come alive in us that we would wrap our entire lives around these scriptures that they would equip us for the life that God created us for. And I'm just going to say this, and this is bold, but if you're not reading scripture... If you're not reading the word of God, you, are, you cannot be in a thriving and growing relationship with Jesus. That apart from reading scripture, you are not growing in your understanding of God, and I would argue you're probably lessening in your understanding of God. And so I want to encourage you that, that this is of the utmost importance. That we need to be a church, a community, a youth group that is in the word, that is digging in. Because scripture is God-breathed. Check out this next verse. For the word of God, for the word of God is alive and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to a dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You see, scripture, the word of God that God shares with us, it is alive and it is active. What it means is when you look at these words that are written thousands of years ago, they apply to your life today. 
It means that, that the Holy Spirit wants to use these words to transform you, to shape you, to bring healing to your life, to give you hope, to give you direction, that these words from God are alive and active. And let me be as bold to say that if we are not in the word, we are not alive and active. That if we are not people reading the scriptures, connecting with God and understanding his love letter to us, then you are not alive and you are certainly not active in the kingdom. And I'm gonna be honest with you, this is for me, okay? As your pastor, I'll admit it, I struggle. It is, it is sometimes really difficult for me to make time to be in the word. But what I've known about my life is that the seasons where I'm in the word, I feel more alive and more active. Sometimes hard things still happen, but I can handle them in a different way. So when I'm in the word, I am more alive and I am more active. And when I'm not in the word, I am not alive and I am not active. And so I want to challenge you that we need to be people who are in the word. Let's go to the next one, Rob. And this is the last thing I want to share, and then we're going to wrap up. St. Augustine said this, and I think this is just an incredible, wonderful quote. He says, Whoever therefore thinks that he understands the divine scriptures or any part of them so that it does not build the double love of God and of our neighbor, they do not understand it at all. And so you guys, this is God's love letter to us, right? This is God's message to us. But if when we read the scriptures, we find ourselves more angry with people, right? If we find ourselves more judgmental, if we find ourselves more hostile, if we find ourselves more removed from people, right? We say, hey, hey, I'm Christian. I don't hang out with those people anymore. I don't talk with those people. Or that situation is too messy. Or, oh man, if, if, if I'm hanging out with this person, what are people gonna think? If we find ourselves removing, if we find ourselves moving away from relationships, if we find ourselves not double loving God and double loving one another, then we are completely misreading the scriptures and we don't understand them at all. So what I want to encourage you with is you have a choice. You have a choice what to do with this information. I think there is so much evidence that points to the scriptures being reliable, that points to them being God's word to us, God's love letter message to us. But like a love letter that I may write to Sarah, she has a choice whether to open it. She has a choice whether to act on that. She has a choice whether as she reads that, whether, whether she's going to let that bring us closer together or whether she's just going to say, oh, that's an interesting fact or, oh, that was brought up on Sunday and be done with it. But if you want to be alive and active, if you want to experience the life God has for you, we have to be people who are in the word, who are spending time with God, who are growing in our relationship with him and understanding him because all scripture is God-breathed. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your scripture. Thank you for giving it to us. It is a gift to us. God, thank you that it is alive and active, that, that, that it contains your breath, your, your message to us, God. Thank you that it points us towards you. And God, I pray that you would just give us an unnatural desire to get to know you more to dig into your love letter to us and to allow it to seep into our hearts and change every part of us. Thank you for giving us this love letter. May we take it seriously. May we conform our lives to what you say.
We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right. Hey, love you guys. Let's break.